you have your Bible with you, uh, please go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one there in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, please feel free to use that one. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. If you don't like that one, let me know. I probably got a nicer one around here that somebody left behind. And uh, happy to give that one to you if you promise to use it. Um, we're continuing this sort of journey that we began a couple months ago, walking through the book of Ephesians, walking with the saints in Ephesus there. And I'd ask you now to just stand with me, uh, if you would. And we're going to look together uh, to God in His Word to us this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start there in verse 25. Uh, That's where we're picking it up here, right there in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion." that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us here this morning through your word. I pray that we would hear your voice. I pray that we would know you more truly, more deeply, more passionately. And I pray that you speak to us now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've, uh, as we've continued to make our way through this letter over the last few weeks, one of the things that stood out to me, and, and listen, this should be really obvious, so I, I, maybe this makes me a little slow, I, I don't know, but one of the things that has stood out to me really in the last month um, is the fact that this letter is written like to the church, okay? And, and listen, I know like at the top of the first page, it's got it in bold letters, something like to the church at Ephesus or to the saints in Ephesus, but, but one of the one of the things that really just stands out to me is that it's written to us, or written to the church as a people. Uh, it's to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, so it's not just to the pastor. Like some of Paul's letters are written specifically to a pastor, but it's not just to a pastor, and it's not just to the elders of the church or the leaders in the church. It's not just to the ministry leaders. It's not just to like the super volunteers, right? It's not to the people in there changing diapers, Right now, it's not just to them, and it's not just to the super faithful either. Like, it's written to every single one of us. And so it's written to those who are, who are struggling to believe, right? And we can be honest about that. Sometimes it's hard to believe this. And it's written to those who are weak and, and those who are hurting. It's written, to, it's written to those who are fearful about what's going to come tomorrow, It's written to the disenfranchised. It's written to the marginalized. It's written to those who've been neglected and abused. It's it's to all of the church. 
And even the opening greeting where Paul says it, he says, grace to you. This is the very beginning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that greeting right there makes it clear that it's being written to people who are in need. They need grace. They need peace. We need grace. We need peace. Paul recognizes that the lives of the people aren't being lived in some sort of like spiritual vacuum. They're not living with this safety net or something like that. But they, but they, just like us today, are living in the dust and the dirt and the struggle of life in this world. And so the letter to the Ephesians sort of demands of us an honest look at our own lives because it comes to us in the reality of our lives. It comes to us on the ground. like It comes to us with our feet in the dirt. And Jesus meets us with all of our spots, with all of our wounds. He meets us with all of our scars, both the self-inflicted and those that have been, those that have been inflicted upon us. I once heard, heard Tim Keller say this. He said, he said, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by His grace, He does not leave us where we are. This is important for us to remember. It's that Jesus came to you not when you were at your best, but when you were at your worst. And he doesn't come and say, stay there. He says, and he comes and says, come with me or come to me. It's that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You remember that one? That's Romans 5, right? That's the, that's the simple gospel. That's the plain gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us tend to do a good job of overcomplicating the beautiful simplicity of the good news, right? But that's it, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the way Paul has said it to the Ephesians, the way he has said it to us in this letter is that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So while we were still sinners, right? Dead in our trespasses. While we were sinners, he made us alive together with Christ. And he says this, by grace you have been saved. I said there's this very tangible change that happens when we come to God by his grace and through the gift of faith that he gives us to walk in newness of life. It's that walk that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And it's that walk that we're going to continue to unpack here today And his exhortation to us, more than just a word of encouragement, this is not a word of encouragement. It's not discouraging, but it's not primarily a word of encouragement. He's not saying it'd be a good idea if you did this. These are exhortations. These are commands to us as believers. It's a directive that we're given as the church, every single one of us, that having put on the new self, right, created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, that was was verse 24, he says this, Therefore... Having put away falsehood, that's a description of the old self. That word falsehood right there is a, is a summary of what's been called the former manner of life. He says, let each one of you, because that has been put away, right? Because that old life is gone, because that old self is gone. He says to each one of us, therefore, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's what the whole first section of this brief passage is about. It's about what we're going to call reflected grace in the church. And Paul keeps coming back to this idea. He comes back to it over and over and over again. He keeps coming back to this idea that 
this reality that while, yes, we are saved as individuals, that yes, Christ saves you as a person. He saves you with your sin and your baggage, with all your wounds, all the stuff that you as an individual bring to the table. He comes and he saves you. Yes and amen, he does that, but he also saves every single one of us. We're all saved, all true Christians, we're saved into the new covenant community. That's part of what Jesus did in saving you as he brought you together. See, Paul here just keeps driving this reality home. One of the things that becomes clear is that just like with the church today, um, the church back then had a very real tendency in life and in faith to, to sort of remain just at the surface. That's where it's safe, you know, at the surface. Our family, we're lake people. We don't have a pool. We have a lake. That's what we play in. If you know anything about the lake in this area, it's the darkest, most disgusting water ever. Eventually, it's genuinely, it's like people who grew up on Lake Murray are like, seriously, COVID? I mean, like, we've literally swam in a, in a swamp for the, our entire lives. And so, like, our kids grow up playing on the lake. And, and it's, it's one thing, and if you've ever been out there, you know, you just can't see past about eight inches in front of your face. That's pure faith the moment you drop into the water. So our kids, they love to swim up at the surface, right? But if something drops and you got to go like down near the dock and go get it, that's a game changer because that's down into the dark. Well, here's what I would tell you. Like, we can't be so comfortable with the surface where it's easy to see and easy to breathe. Sometimes we're called to leap down into the darkness. We're called to go deep into the life of faith. It's to step off the dock and dive into something that that honestly, if we're honest, okay, listen, if we're honest with this whole Christianity thing, this feels dangerous. It feels risky. The idea of being members one of another, again, if we will be honest, and some of you look around, you'll prove this to yourself. If we're honest with one another, that is a risky move to like graft our hearts to one another because people are risky, man. Like we are. People are grumpy. Nobody amen that, but you should have. (laughs) We're grumpy. We're selfish. We are. We're power hungry. We're demanding, right? We want our comfort. We want our preferences. And if you think that's an unfair judgment, you just let somebody pull out in front of you on the way home and make you hit your brakes. And see if you aren't a little grumpy. You see, we're prone to letting each other down. That's literally one of our natural byproducts of the fall. It's part of the mark of Adam. The very first thing that happened after sin entered into the world is man turned on one another. And so coming into deep, meaningful, spiritually formational relationships with one another is a risky thing. But what we're seeing here, and this is really, it's, it's, a consistent, it's a consistent reality that God has for his people throughout all of Scripture, is that the way of the world, the way of the natural, fallen world, that's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of the gospel. And each one of these imperatives that we're going to see in, in, this, in this section, we, we need to see this, is that all of them are relational. All of them are like new covenant community focused imperatives. That this is how you, as the church, that this is how you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is how you must and shall live with one another. This is how you are to treat one another. These are the moral principles, right? Sort of the grace-driven ethics of the communion of the saints. And listen, this isn't an exhaustive list. 
It's not, this, this isn't everything, but it's also not an abstract list. You can tell this isn't just rooted in just moral guidelines. This is rooted in genuine relationships. This is rooted in the things that Paul has seen. And I think if we're honest, it'll be rooted in the things that we have seen in one another. These are real time, real life, real situation, real relational ethics for the new creation sons and daughters of God. And he, and he starts with one that seems so basic that we might skip over. It's just being honest with one another. And notice that it's directed at the individuals within the communion of saints. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see, it's personal. Let each of you. It's not for some people within the, with like a particular personality, right? It's not just for those people who are, who are good at that. And it's, it's not for people with like a certain social standing either. And we need to be careful with that, that we don't have some sort of hierarchy in the church that qualifies you to speak or not speak. We need to remember back in verse 15, we were told that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So, so here, that's a detail we need to be clear on. We we're told to speak the truth with one another. That's not licensed to be like a jerk, okay? I mean, some of us are good at speaking the truth in brutality, okay? Like it's almost like a badge of honor for people. I'm just really honest, I'm pretty convinced some of us need like a little surgeon general's warning on us. Like just says, I tell the brutal truth. I am brutally honest. But look, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not what we're called to be about. Okay, and we should be clear that it doesn't say, let each of you speak your strongly felt preferences with his neighbor. That's not it either. It's to speak the what? To speak the truth. And the only way we can really speak the truth is, is to have the truth to speak. And that really comes from a humble, sort of poor in spirit understanding of who we really are apart from the grace of God in Christ. So, so we, here's what that means. It means we need to be creatures of the word. Like we need to be so committed to the truth and the way of Jesus that we are constantly meeting with him, constantly listening to him in his word because that's where the truth is found. And we share that, like we share that with one another. That's what, part of what we do here every Sunday. That's part of what the whole gathered church does in every place. Not just this place, we're not some special branch of the church. I know we're glad you're here, we love you, you are special to us. Please don't leave, right? Like I, I don't want, I'm not trying to make you run away, but this isn't some unique thing that exists. Like we have the same word that the entire church has. We gather to meet honestly and openly with Christ, to allow Him to speak to us in this new covenant community. And He continues, right? How does this get reflected? How does this reflected grace look in the church? Well, here, so here's the truth, right? Let's go to the Bible. Look at verse 26. It says, Be angry and do not sin. It says, Do not let the sun go down on your, ang- on, on, uh, on your anger. Yeah, so, so the Bible says, Be angry. Y'all act like that's normal. Like in my entire church experience growing up, it was fundamentally, you're not supposed to be angry. You're supposed to be a happy person. You just laugh your way through life. I have Jesus. So now I just kind of float above the mess. And the Bible says to be angry, but, but it's not just be angry, right? Well, we know that. This is more like righteous indignation, okay? So when we see injustice, 
And we do, we see that. When we see sin, both in our lives and in the lives of our, of our brothers and sisters in faith, when we see gross prejudice, when we hear lies and deceit and feel the weight of the brokenness around us, here's what be angry and do not sin, sin means. It means we're not at liberty to be indifferent to the sin and suffering around us. We should be angry when babies are murdered in the womb. We should be angry when prejudice abounds. We should be angry, here's one, we should be angry that pornography and human trafficking are so common and seemingly accepted in our world. We should be angry when corrupt governments and agencies perpetuate and weaponize things like hunger and starvation against the vulnerable and the marginalized in any culture. Be angry, but don't be controlled by it. Be angry, but don't be owned by it. Be angry, but don't be manipulated by it. We have to learn to trust God in the midst of it. Otherwise, here's what it says, the enemy will get a foothold in our hearts. And he continues, look at 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Historians will tell us that, that theft was sort of a, just, just a really common thing in first century Ephesus, it was an ordinary and accepted part of the culture. Basically, basically, they lived in like a finders, keepers, losers, weepers culture. But now in our sort of rugged, individualistic Western society, um, we, we aren't so open with theft today. Right? We're not as comfortable with that. But there are other culturally accepted sins that we do need to wage war against. Like, we need to wage war against the sexual sin that's so pervasive in our culture. And be careful that you, when you hear me say culture, you don't hear me say you, uh, culture apart from us. <laughs> when I say culture in that context, I mean, we need, to be, we need to wage war against the sexual sin that's so comfortable within the church culture that we find ourselves today. We need to wage war against abuse and neglect. There are too many orphans on this planet. And we have too many spare rooms. Sorry, if that one's personal. No, I'm not sorry at all. Take that back. I re retract the apology. We have too many spare rooms for there to be 300 million kids without a home. We wage war against drunkenness. And I just want to tell you, <laughs> that's one of the ones that we play all too friendly with. Okay, and, and, and if you don't believe me, like just walk around the tailgates at football games. <laughs> um, I don't know what stock in Budweiser is, but it's got to be high because they are killing it down off of Bluff Road on Saturdays. Like, just check out the wedding receptions, by the way, of professing Christians. If the church, think about it this way, if the church would just commit to a countercultural biblical ethic with alcohol, we would stand out immediately as different from the world around us. I look at verse 29 because he's not done with us quite yet. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So, so watch your mouth. I mean, that's half the calling, right? Watch your mouth. Be careful what you say. That's half the calling. But, but there's a positive side of that as well. Like we're to speak only such as good. This is the second part of that. We're to speak only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Listen, as a Christian, you are called to a noble purpose. For the glory of God, that is a noble purpose. We need to fight. Like We need to wage a holy war 
against this in our lives and in our churches. I read something this week that really caught me. Here's what the author said. She said, churches find themselves powerless in the world and not able to invite our neighbors into the faith because we don't live in ways that give any warrant for belief. Did you, I want to I read that one more time. This was, by the way, this is from a book called The Unnecessary Pastor um, that somebody recommended to me. Felt good, felt good. Um, I'm still recovering as I read through it. Churches find themselves powerless in the world and not able to invite our neighbors into the faith because we don't live in ways that give any warrant for belief. She's basically saying the problem with the church is you don't look like the church. And so nobody in the world has any use for you because you look just like the world. I heard a story recently of a man named, I'm going to butcher this poor Bosnian guy's name, but whatever. Anyway, his name is Vedran Smilovic. Probably not smile, but I like it that way. Anyway, Vedran Smilovich, he was the principal cellist in the Sarajevo Opera. And back on May 28, 1992, so a while back, during what's been called the Siege of Sarajevo, which is a three, it was a three-year bombardment against that city. So a city sort of comparable to like Colombia and the surrounding area, okay? A three-year bombardment during what was the Bosnian War. Here's what, here's, what, here's what our boy did. He dressed in his tuxedo, all right? So like his formal tails that he used when he was playing in the opera. And he sat down on a fire-scorched chair in the middle of a bomb crater. And he pulled out his cello and he began to play. You see, the day before, on May 27th, 22 of his neighbors, 22 of them had been had been killed when a shell exploded um, outside the last little remaining bakery in the part of town where they were, and, and it killed them all. Caught in the way, caught in the midst of the, of the fire, hoping just to buy bread, they lost their lives. And so here's what I read. I, I love, I'm just going to read it to you. He says this, Known as the cellist of Sarajevo, Smilovich not only performed outside the bakery, but he continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble of buildings, and in the sniper-infested streets. Here's what he said. I never stopped playing music throughout the siege. He said, my weapon was my cello. Although completely vulnerable, Smilovich was never shot. It was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo, Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. Here's what I want you to hear. A reporter asked him if he was crazy for playing in a war zone. I mean, what are you doing? Are you, are you stupid? Like, what was... Are you crazy for playing in a war zone? Smilovich replied, Why do you not ask if they are crazy for shelling Sarajevo? Are you crazy for playing in a war zone? Why didn't you ask them if they're crazy for turning this into a war zone? You see, this is a vision of the church in the world. An oasis of harmony in the midst of the violent dissonance all around us. It's reflected grace to the world. It's what we're called to be, an alternative society for 
the glory of our Savior and for the good of our neighbors. It's the reflected grace of God in the church. That's part of the calling. That's the noble calling upon the family of God. But there's more. You see, this new covenant community, this alternative society, it isn't formed with new laws or even new ethics. Not new goals and and really not new strategies. But through a renewed and restored relationship with our Creator. Look at verse 30. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with old malice. That's the old self. Bitterness. Wrath. Anger. Clamor. Slander. By the way, this is, this is, this is truly the song of our day. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. We're angry about everything. We're, we're slander anybody who, who, who we want to. It's just free to just say whatever we want about anybody. Let those be put away from you along with all malice. That's the old self. That word there for put away can literally be translated to kill it. To kill that is to eliminate it, to be done with it. To take off the old self, right? So, so that's an activity that we participate in, that we actively engage in. The daily killing of sin and hostility in our own hearts and in our relationships. Now look at 32. Here's what we put on. That's what we take off. Here's what we put on. Here's how we positively live out the implications of the grace of God in the world. What does he say? Be kind to one another. (laughs) Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see how intentional this is. Be kind to one another. I mean, be considerate. Be gracious. He says to be tender-hearted. It's to be compassionate. To be gentle. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. This is how we do that right here. And then finally, and we can't miss this. He says that we should be forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is gospel-driven forgiveness, right? Some of us are bad at kindness. Some of us are bad at tenderheartedness. And some of us are really bad at forgiveness. We're bad at it because, well, at least one reason. I think we're bad at it because we've made too little of Christ's sacrifice for us. We've forgotten the cross. But the call here, right? The call here is from Jesus is to is to understand what He has done for you. It's about knowing that, that love that Jesus has poured out on us and for us. It, it's like, so it's like Paul, is, here's what Paul's saying here. Why don't you treat people like Jesus died for them? You know, when Augustine reflected on the impact of Ambrose, he, Ambrose was the bishop of Milan, um, when he, when he reflected on the impact of this teacher and mentor on his life, as he was remembering his influence from that time when he was far from the Lord, when, when, when Augustine, who basically the first Reformed theologian, right? Well, Jesus and Paul, obviously. As he's reflecting on that, he's, he had this to say. He said it, to, to Ambrose, it was not your great teaching. He said, I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. It wasn't your great teaching. He said, it was that you were kind to me. 
It, it's said in Scripture that it was the kindness, the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead you to, re, to repentance. I wonder what your kindness is meant to lead others to. See, our kindness to one another and our kindness to our neighbors is a reflection of the grace and the kindness that we have received from God. And far from grieving the Holy Spirit of God, this life, like living the life of Christ, it brings glory to our Savior and it also brings light to the darkness. It's standing in the bomb crater that is this fallen world and singing the new song of our Savior, like a song of hope, a song of peace, a song of love, a song of grace, a song of mercy. Here's what I'm convinced of. And this is a challenge for us as a church that I, that I believe comes out of Ephesians 4. I'm not just, hopefully not just making this up. But here's my conviction and here's my prayer. Is that if we sing the new song of the Lord, that song of grace, that song of love, that song of peace, that song of hope, if we sing that loud enough and long enough, maybe, just maybe, the world will take notice and will want to join in. Too much of our time is spent pointing out all of the specks in the eyes of the world around us and not acknowledging the logs in our own eyes. May God help us as we pursue his life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive me for all the ways that I fail in this. Lord, forgive me for being short-tempered. Forgive me for, for the bitterness that still at times resides in my heart. The, the ways that I feel I've been wronged and I hold on to those things. Forgive me for not forgiving when I have been wronged. For wanting to hold on to that. For thinking that's the warm blanket when really it's, really it's what's killing me. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for your church that we would walk in this today. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Lord, let us be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as you and Christ have forgiven us. Help us to walk in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.